Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host of the Cloud 23 podcast. This episode is related to a topic uh, written by Eric Norland and SK Ventures about technical debt and AI. And we drill into that article specifically and discuss the consequences of how generative AI and AI in general might be radically transforming the way in which we generate code and deal with code that has been generated, the technical debt. And we really explore some fascinating concepts about how fast we can iterate, how we change the dynamics of building software, building automation, and the expertise required to architect the system. And we get very far down in the path um, towards disruptive thinking and how this could reshape the entire industry. I know you'll enjoy the discussion all the way up through the end. It's fascinating. All right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to pivot us from hummus, which is my other favorite topic. <laughs> from hummus uh, to technical debt. Hummus to technical debt. Um, I, I thought this article was really good. Um, and Eric Norland, I'm going to Glucon. I'm speaking about um, generative DevOps there. Um, and, but, and that whole Glucon conference has become an AI conference this year. Um, so, which I think is going to be really, really cool. Um, and so this, you know, he's been doing a lot of research and a lot of thought about this, the, the, there are a couple things in this article that stood out, um, it changed my thinking a little bit and I'm interested in hearing other people's thoughts. So I'll, I'll stage mine. Um, but this idea that, um, the generative, the, the generative AI or really the whole AI change going on right now um it will impact programming much more significantly than we're thinking from a and and not just like oh it's going to help me write new programs but it might actually change the way we look at the existing code base um and i i found that to be pretty remarkable um about the longevity of code that we've written or the quality of the code. Um, but I don't have any way to judge whether it's a legitimate, it, it, those are legitimate um, outcomes. Well, it hasn't happened yet. Um, at the same time also, I have been uh, using my forced forced vacation to, to do a lot of research in this whole area. Yeah. I'm finding a number of um, people talking about the impact of generative AI on the nature of programming languages that are used in the sense that one of the things you want to be able to do is to make it that much more definitive, declarative, if you want, um, and um, more easily digested, interpretable by, by an LLM. And so there are a couple of groups that I'm now aware of that are actually 
thinking about how they would want to either modify existing um, approaches to uh, coding or um, the notion of you know net new languages. Now, I really do have to say, however, I think Paul and Eric did themselves no favors by starting out this article with the notion of technical debt and going through the whole, you know, um, economics, mm. economics 101, because they, they really took some pretty serious liberties with, with economics theory. And, and it really, I think it detracted from it. I would agree, however, with the, <clears throat> the conclusion, well, one aspect of the conclusion that it is absolutely going to change the nature of um, how software is written. And that includes designed, tested, written, deployed, and operated. And in all of those cases, there will be uh, different levels of, but some significant uh, impact by um, LLMs. It's just, uh, you know, I can't see, I can't see, I, I frankly can't see any way around it. And in point of fact, it will, it can be turned into something of a superpower for those who understand programming or understand a particular approach to programming. And I think that's, uh, I think that almost goes without saying. You look, you look. No, I, there's, there's, well, there's, there's a couple of pieces. I'm, I'm not dubious at all. Um, actually, I, I agree with your. I, I, I also agree that the second half of this article was more powerful than the first half. Um, yeah. um, the boy, there's, there's layers in what we're talking about, right? There's, there's. Where they went, which was the impact of sort of the existing code base. Um, and I, I get one of the things that you didn't describe as much, and I, I'm super interested in is this idea of generative testing, um, which, which I don't think we talk about enough. And I, I, I would love to see the idea that, you know, AI writing tests for, soft, for code, which would then allow it, you to refactor the code or re-improve it change its language, but without the testing, and humans don't do a good job of building tests um, yeah. um, and for cognitive reasons, it, and I, I think from bias reasons. And most of it is restricted to unit tests, you know, kind of... Very minimal. Yeah. Very minimal. And so I, I completely agree on that score. Uh, so the whole notion of what does it do to CICD? Is yeah. a very very good question. I mean, if if you could take the developers that you have and then, you know, not just transform your test coverage, which would be unit testing, but actually make improved functional tests, and then if you adjust the code to be able to, you know, mm -hmm. address that, um, yeah, I, I that makes code so much more maintainable, mm -hmm. um, and refactorable and. You know, sustainable over a long period of time. 
there's a there's another uh, aspect that I don't think they addressed quite as well as they could have, and they were skirting the issue when they started talking about um, the price and supply equilibrium. It's really less about supply and more about fit for purpose or or kind of availability for a particular need. If we're really going to talk about uh, generative AI as a as an adjunct to and as a mainstay of, of development, it strikes me that um, one of the things that we need to determine is whether existing languages or approaches that are going to come soon hereafter are in fact capable of mm, customization or almost bespoke development as opposed to um, kind of holding on to a rather all singing, all dancing, but kind of lock you in and have to flip all the switches. Um, it's a, what I mean by that is um, to a great degree, if you change the price paid for a, a software solution that is much more customized, much more purpose, purpose driven, definable and maintain both the costs of production and the quality of code, right. quality of, of, of the offer, that starts to change the, the economics of, of software again, and quite frankly, changes the economics of software as a service. Do you, do you think, is the place where I'm going with what you're describing here is... Oh my goodness! It, it on the when I pull on this thread, it it really unwinds. Is that you could actually say, "I want to buy your software, right?" But I only these are my use cases. This is what I need. You're going to build custom bespoke software for me out of your code base that only does the thing I need it to do. Um, and until I need to extend it, until I need to extend it, <laughs> then I'm going to ask for something new. But, Right, that makes sense to me, and I, I, I push back on you, except except I've been thinking as you're talking about, you know, okay, and I could write something in Python, let generative AI convert that into C, get a huge performance boost out of it, and even more importantly, eliminate all the libraries that I would normally depend on. So you could actually come back, right, right today, because of humans, we have... You, know, you write a tiny fraction of code and then it builds on all these libraries and the libraries have huge code bases that you don't need. You don't care about. They right. drag in security issues. They drag in all sorts of stuff, but, but they come in because you need one subroutine. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't make any sense for us to, as humans, to eliminate that pattern. But from an AI perspective, you could be like, wait a second, I'm actually going to build um, a complete code base for this one use and generate the whole darn thing. Um, and actually even better, 
continually regenerate it based on so like if that subroutine in that library improves i would i could be regenerating that code on a you know hourly basis learning from the system and coming back and the fact that i've actually decomposed it and gotten rid of all the libraries meant my agility on that code base has gone way way up huge it You're also adds about- to the risk it also adds to to risk that has to be addressed which is the um the whole notion of dependencies i mean all you need is to poison you know one of these one of these subroutines or one of these libraries that gets developed and you know there's a there's a there are issues that have to be there are different kinds of issues that have to be addressed i think what it then does it starts to go into um looking at much more carefully at the um the lineage and the provenance of your code base, where it came from and the and the dependencies. I mean, but would but you I eliminate also... dependencies with this model? You wouldn't have any dependencies at all. You would have a completely self-contained system, right? Except for the you training really model. Think every, you really think that they're, you know, everything is going to be developed from whole cloth and tested against, no. you know, and tested from whole cloth? Why not? I, I kind why, of, why would well, why would I bring in a library if I can basically use AI to look at the libraries that exist, generate exactly the code I need, and just be just move on? Then you're putting some you're putting significant weight on the AIs to make sure that they've you know done the appropriate job, and you have to kind of check their work as well. But mm-hmm. um, no, I okay. I mean, in the extreme, I can see that. So I just don't know how fast we get there. It almost strikes me as easy. I'm looking at it. I'm looking at it from the point of view of this is personalized fit for purpose code where snippets will become or what we call microservices now will become the code base for going forward. I can take only, I can write only what I need. I can iterate it. I can regenerate it. I can refactor it. I can reformat it all using AI, but I can direct it to exactly the problem I'm trying to solve. What I have a problem with, with this article is not only the economics argument, which I don't agree with at all, but also that the what they're not talking about is the logic behind the writing of the code. You can't think for me as an AI. You don't know what my point of view is in how I create the logic, how I how I use the code to instantiate the function I'm trying to enable or the feature that I'm trying to enable. That's the character that I think will take a long time to get to. But everything else around it, you could do today in, in, to a very large extent. And to your point about the libraries, Rob, I agree with Rich that you are bringing significant risk in because you don't know what the thought process behind that library was originally. And, and which yeah. iteration of it you're actually, which may have deviated substantially from the origin 
how are you going to know that it's not broken or it's not been uh, sort of waylaid to a single point of I produce this. But that's that's actually the reason why I I think that eliminating the libraries is is a powerful substance, right? What you're doing is you're saying, I, I don't trust the provenance of a library or even its update frequency. I can model, I, you know, I, I assume my AI has ingested the best behaviors, right? Now, I'm not talking about a static thing, right? What you're doing is you're, right. you're saying, I am I'm going to, as a person, iterate through what my application needs to be, at, but I'm not going to, I don't want to trust the, you know, the, you know, the FTP or SSH library, I, I'm going to bring that in and I'm going to set my code up to constantly regenerate with the, and this is where the model building becomes really important, right? You have to be willing to say, okay, the, my AI can generate the parts of the, you know, the SSL protocol um, better than the library. It's it's interesting when you talk about protocols, especially if you've got two distinct AIs generating the functionality at two ends of a of a you know of you know the protocol endpoints, sure. and somehow something isn't working correctly. You know who's who's who's, who's at the fault. Who's the mediator? Who? How do you resolve it? Is there, you know, it's it lends itself to a cut and try kind of approach. And if you can make sure that the, you know, you you've got a means of of going that route, okay. But as soon as you've got two implementations at the at the endpoints of what arguably is supposed to be the same protocol and they don't and they don't perform exactly the way you are expecting them to perform that there's an inconsistency then it's a <laughs> it's it's a question you know my ai is better than yours or you know how do you, how do you adjudicate that it's but, it, but wait it's, but you could you could go and back to the protocol. You could take a system, you know, and say, "Hey, I, here's the Kubernetes, you know, data. Here's all my interactions with Kubernetes based on the, its API and input. Recreate this. Um, you know, replicate, yeah. replicate, and and tell the AI I I need a Kubernetes alternative." Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and then and then <clears throat> actually add in behaviors that were spoke to you i don't i don't i mean this this is where where this article got me thinking through this idea of you know I, or even taking the kubernetes code base as it is and saying hey i want you to rewrite it to eliminate all functions that i don't need or right yeah. um yeah um it's <laughs> it it's an appealing idea um it kind of reminds me of then what what happened when we first tried to put uh, TCP/IP uh, together, and mm. and and you know it was like, all right, here's the spec. Any two implementations that can talk to one another, and arguably, <laughs> um, you know, follow the spec. We declare them. 
the winners. They are official. Um, yeah. And it then starts to starts to kind of go into such things as, all right, what we have most likely in situations like this, or I'll call them meta protocols between the AIs who actually figure out, all right, in order to resolve this, how do we exchange information with one another? How do we come to resolution? What's the nature of resolution of things like this? It's it's wild and crazy. It really is. Is is do you, I mean generative AI is not really designed for a, a feedback loop like that that I've seen. Um, oh, I guess I oh. guess it is. I mean, when we're interacting with generative AI here, we're like, hey, here's something. Write this. No, add this. No, change this. And it's oh, it's, it's it. I I yeah. What you need to be taking a look at is what people are doing with. Um, Kind of chain uh, chaining. I've seen, I've seen the chains, the chained uh, models. Yeah, yeah, the the lang chain is a is an important one. I think there are a couple of others, but yes, no, those, those do have feedback loops and memory, mm-hmm. and that is that's really significant. It's very significant in in the in the kind of scenario that we're just describing right now. And that's the whole, I mean, you know, when you talk about generative versus iterative, that's where I think, you know, when you mentioned, Rob, about your talk at the conference, is it really generative or is it iterative? Because to me, generative takes from what there is, Right. Right. Like chat GTP, if you say to it, write blah, 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 and you give it conditions and variables, it will write that. If you then go and say, no, that's not what I meant, it will say, sorry, try this or Mm -hmm. add more variables to it. That to me is generative versus iterations with changing conditions. So the the thing that I would distinguish between is, right, there's there's an AI feedback loops right where you're running a system okay um which is not what i'm which is not what i'm talking about in the in this case it's not a manage it's not a maintenance system although right ideally you would you could tell the generative system to make something more maintainable or get feedback but mm-hmm. I, I see people sort of in that loop at the moment but what we're what we're really describing is the expertise required to build um the automate you know for us it's the automation even more than anything else to make a system work is is really high and it's a barrier to, to people managing their own infrastructure, right? The generative system has either, it can take, it can reduce that expertise. I don't actually think that's where we go initially. I think what it does is it takes the experts we have and it boosts their productivity much, much more, much, much more, which is where I think Eric, Eric, right, Eric and Paul went, it's, Hey, I'm a programmer. Absolutely. I have to take the, I have this existing body of of code. AI, go refactor this. Go write my tests, right? You know, uh convert, you know, this is a, you know, this low performing, give me a higher performance routine here. Optimize this routine for me. Um yeah. and I mean, developers it, become closer to managers of teams of of, you know, they are they are basically establishing 
you know, what the, um, what the charter is, what the objectives are, what, what tests are applied to, um, to the result that, um, that basically adjudicate whether it's acceptable or not. So then are you calling developers architects? Well, they are and they aren't. They, you know, an architect, um, possibly, but they're they're more the stand-in for the requirement um, as opposed to the architect, the design. The question is how much design is involved. Right. And that's I think that'll I, that's... change. That'll change over time. Is, are I, we go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say when I read this article, the thing that resonated most to me or immediately came to mind and it kind of angered me was that they're taking the supposition or the or the premise, if you will, that architects are useless human beings when it comes to this. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, which I, you know, I, I found But you can understand why I, I would so think this is, that. This is, you're actually hitting a question that I wanted to, to ask. Um, it's funny because, right, I mean, I, of my, my kids are of an age where we're having, I'm talking to a lot of parents of college-age kids and college-age kids in general. And we're, you know, one of the big conversations here is what is, what is AI doing from an education perspective? Um, and so... There is no doubt expertise is needed to influence these systems. Um, I think that's been a premise with this, and that, that's fine. Let's let's make let, let me let me work with the assumption that you need our expertise is important in designing the prompts and iterating through and judging the results. Okay. How are the next generation of people getting that expertise? We're, we're right. Even remote work. One of the things I was here, you know, my wife was talking to me about was, you know, the, the, the new workers in the workforce aren't getting enough interaction to get the mentoring they need to really become, become, and, and we're, we're literally taking a whole degree of learning away from people in these tools. You just, you've just, you've just identified a, you know, a form of scarcity. Yeah. That's going to going to kind of raise its head as part of the economics of, of software, um, and I think that's a completely legitimate question. And I think the whole notion that you know architecture, mm -hmm. where if I'm where what you're incorporating is design experience, it's it is engineering. Right. It's, it's, engineering. it's engineering and architecture. If these, if the people managing the AIs have no, um, have no experience, then over time, you just better hope that the AIs get, you know, better at picking up that part of the job. Because if not, you know, we're going to, you know, we're going to find some, some serious meltdowns. Or alternatively to serious meltdowns, I think that just by the amount of code that the AIs are ingesting, 
and the kinds of functions and features that they're being asked to write, they will subsume the role of the architect because they will be able to take that perspective that folks like that, us that's what I, bring I, that to the was, equation. That's another way of saying what I was trying to get to, which is that the, the AIs themselves become the repositories for that kind of expertise and talent. And the, the, the questions then become ones of, all right, um, do we agree on certain kinds of methodologies? Do we agree that the, the checking and double checking that is done perhaps by other AIs um, is, you know, we have to agree to all of this. I think you're going to find that validation of some of these solutions, especially if they're critical solutions, are, you know, validation in corp you know, everything from, you know, code reviews to you know, simulations to, you know, you name it. Um, this changes the economics of, of software, especially, you know, big system software. And um, then the question is, all right, can we, you know, at what point do we have all of the, all of the ducks in a row? And can we, can we rely on the, uh, the industry to have supplied them? I don't know that we can, hmm. I don't know what I don't know, but I would say from a purely theoretical perspective that we will never be able to trust them 100%. And it comes down to trust because tacit and implicit experience and, and our knowledge base can be cannot be transferred in the same way as you can take any kind of pattern and translate it. You can take any kind of mm, contextualization or variables and add them. But what you can't take is that way to put things to one plus one plus one equals three. With, a create, with the creativity that humans can see something in a bigger picture that the AI will never be able to because it's not a futuristic thinker. Right, but, but let me, I agree with you. It's also building on the experience that we, we have. I wanna put on the, but maybe we're old farts hat for a second. <laughs> and, uh, right, because-, because well, I mean, we're used to a world in which our ability to, as we write the code or as we build the system, think in an anticipatory way about what could go wrong and incorporate that into the design as we go. Right. What, we're, what we're describing is a place where the, the process of building is so fast that if that and and somebody new inexperienced walking into this without our bias would can walk in and say all right building is cheap building is free we we don't assume that right we we have to untrain that behavior but they're like all right building is free i'm going to my design process is going to change to iterative 
design. Mm-hmm. Right. So what I'm going to do is my specialty is not understanding all the implications. It's actually helping drive the certain the parameters to build and then you know test all of the, the scenarios to, to find the design envelope. Um, and it's so cheap. They're like, okay, wow. actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna take time to build something that we never get to do. Right? They can actually test their design envelope. Yeah. This is like where finite element analysis changed engineering um, in dramatic ways because all of a sudden you're building a part and you're like, okay, I don't have to build a hundred things, test them under circumstances, pull them apart. I can run all those scenarios, find the hot spot, and then redesign it. Tested a whole like the whole wind tunnels, but you know we don't need wind tunnels the way we used to. Um, we're about to enter a, another hundred x change yep. where the the cost of building an iteration and testing it is really modeling really low. and modeling and simulation make turn everything on its head. Yeah, because you might sit there and say, if I can build a model that behaviorally you know, I can't find a corner case that that you know makes it fail. As soon as I you know kind of get to that high level approach, I'm gonna you know I might find myself working backwards from that in order to actually construct the the actual systems. And there's every reason to think, Rob, as you as you correctly pointed out, it's you know it's the um, the ability to maintain a model or kind of project into the future and, you know, uh, possible weak spots, you know, the whole notion of modeling is going to change in in these systems. And and iterations. It has been. I mean, I'm sorry, I I didn't hear the question. And I say, pardon? I didn't hear the question. I said, hasn't it already? Because I look at things like digital twins, which are Uber views of big factory systems or, Mm -hmm. or, and and they're far more than a simulation. It's actually talking to the equipment on the shop floor and taking your inputs and outputs and generating, you know, real-time information. If that's the case, then the modeling aspect, why wouldn't I just say, build me a machine that does X in Y circumstance and put a Z axis, you know, next to it for for other variables (laughs) and say, chat GTP, go write me code for this. And and use as your reference architecture COBOL. It's actually what I was saying. Whatever. Yeah. You know, find, find a model that, that works, that, you know, you can't break. And then say, fine, I don't know how you put it together at the model, but work back from that. So the world becomes a re- my view of reverse engineering, which is always well, go to there, the end there first. Becomes, there, be, there becomes no distinction between the digital twin and the actual implementation. They become, you know, almost one and the same. Which is this, what we're this, afraid of with AI becoming like as human as humans are. <laughs> Yeah. You can't tell the difference. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
say that somewhat facetiously. You know. No, no, no. No, but listen, I always say, stop thinking for me. I hate chatbots for that reason. Don't think for me. Because you're going to get it wrong. And it's going to frustrate the hell out of me. And I, I think that's where, you know, I've been really thinking about this whole concept of uh, AI in the world of universities, right? So people writing papers and, you know, there's just this, uh, there's this complacency with tenure. And I, I you know, we're just going to blow up our sacred cows around the academic realm because you're going to have to force yourself to be a critical thinker. You're going to this, uh, you can unleash your imagination, but does anybody know how to use an imagination? And I think that that's what this, uh, you know, this whole thing makes possible. Um, and I actually think that critical thinking and imagination will be rewarded um, through the the strides that we've made with AI, because it makes software development accessible to somebody like me who's never coded anything, right? So anyway, those are that's my little two cents about what I see you know, as possible. Listen, I, I, I don't disagree with you, Deanna. The only thing that I would ask is, didn't we get three quarters of, of the way there already with low code and no code? Yeah. No, I, I don't, I don't think so. A good question. Cause I, I, it was still humans dragging, uh, dragging stuff around. I, I, so, so you're within the framework of a system and what a system that was built by humans. I, I think with the generative pieces, you're actually able to build the whole artifact from intent. Mm-hmm. And right. Um, and I, I mean, I can, I can literally, this is, I'm, I'm still getting my head around the iterative, the, the ability to have these systems that iterative. I can see a future IDE where, you're talking to the computer and saying, you know, I want a form that has, you know, takes these things and produces that. And then you can say, no, I need the form bigger. I need these limits. And you just, you're just talking to it and it's dynamically rewriting all the code behind the scenes to build it. Now you can say, now I want you to test it in these scenarios and it should, it would generate, you know, this is the the thing about the the AI generating AI. You would say, all right, generate all the test scenarios for me to do this work and execute Mm -hmm. them. Can we go back to the, the yeah. question you raised earlier about how does the architect, designer, person, you know, single individual, single named individual or individuals who um, have responsibility for kicking this stuff out, how do they get trained well enough? Mm. How do they, you know, Let's put it this way. Are all of these uh, generative AIs going to start, you know, publishing papers? Uh, you know, are we going to go to ArchiveX <laughs> and, and you know, they're going to exchange them and we'll all get to read them as well um, and kind of say, oh, wow, they came up with a really cool, cool approach here. Uh, uh, this is this is fantastic. Wonderful. There's a there's a dissemination of technical and scientific information issue that I don't think anybody's quite addressed. 
We don't know for sure how it works among and between the AIs themselves. And it's not at all clear um, what we are as human beings, you know, basically establishing the requirements um, are, are equipped with in order to kind of get, get a reading on this and be, you know, be the good designer, be the good, you know, um, right. responsible party. I'll just, you know, make but, that point. But do, you, do you think that some of the design rules are going to just, like things that we placed high value on, like standard yeah. libraries and, and some constraints and things like that going to get rewritten or just tossed oh, yeah. out? This is this well, to me is because lot, what we what we know for design rules are, are a lot of good. the rules a lot of the rules are are ways in which to you know kind of ameliorate the the fact that you know it's human beings and their their various and and different levels of talent and understanding are are addressing you know big problems big right. big and so yeah it's going to re, be rewritten it's just the question is. Do we know in what ways and and in what ways uh, can they not be? And it, it could end up being absolutely horrible. Can you can you imagine an AI <laughs> generated, you know, uh, Heartbleed uh, type of thing where it's not a library that you can just replace? It's actually you have to regenerate your code, and the AI and the models that you use to generate the code are no longer accessible or haven't been updated to you know. It's, yeah. I, again, everything's bespoke. Um, everything is bespoke, and if it's bespoke, is it being shared? Because right. we run two risks. One, you know, somebody decides, "Hey, I've got the, you know, I've got an AI that you know knows how to build a left left-handed dog polisher better than <laughs> any in the business." <laughs> And I'm going to, you know, make sure it doesn't, you know, share that information. And at the same time, um, you know, uh, we're we're in a situation where um, it's not being shared. Uh, if it's if there's sharing and and everybody's contributing, we also have a, a you know a situation where a lot of the training data is likely to get is potentially able to potentially going to be poisoned. Let's put it that way. We run a risk yeah. of yeah. poisoning. But but here's the other thing that, that completely freaks me out. I can foresee where, and, and I'll give you the best example that I've seen of late. Yesterday, I saw a clip, a video clip of Spot, you know, the, my favorite robot dog. Um, being given a chat GTP interface. So mm. you can now speak to Spot and it will tell you what its <laughs> missions are and what it's been doing and what the results were and all of that. And one of the, here's the test case and, and why I bring it up. Because at one time, the robot dog moved very close to the human that it was interacting with. And the guy was a little freaked out by it. And he said, how do I tell it to get out of my space, my personal space? And the person he was talking to said to him, just say, spot, move back. 
So he did. He said, spot, back up. And, and it immediately moved. And I looked at that and I said, if it has sentience, that's the only way I, word I can use, to understand back up, mm. not move backwards, but back up to give me more space, then architecture will change. How we conceive code will completely change because everything we know from design rules and comp sci way back when started with some individual in 1947, right? I mean, Turing's yeah. rules are not going to get broken, but the point is that we took old design and we improved it and we iterated on it and we changed it. And now we need that whole scenario of the dog and the, you know, the, the robot dog and the human being is a level of creative consciousness that we've never seen before. And if we apply that to the discussion that we've just had, we not only are old farts, but we are obsolete in many, many ways. Because within a matter of months, someone will have figured out how to do all the things that were referred to in this article, the test scripts. We'll be back to, here's my SDK for this. And it's a single function and a single feature, and it can be added on to anything like a microservice can be, and we can orchestrate them and choreograph, choreograph them however we like. The question is mm. the training data, the biases, and the guardrails that are being put around those AIs. Rant end. <laughs> And I will, I will take that since we're out of time. I will take that right. as a good stopping point. No, it, <laughs> I, I think it's brilliant. We this is this is stretching the bounds of what we understand, and and we have to have conversation and and look at it. But thank you. This is fun. Uh, this should come out just before Glucon, so I'll I'll, I'll ping Eric and let him know. I'm sure, he'll appreciate the, the candid discussion uh, inspired <laughs> no by doubt. his article. Hey, actually, yeah. I, I, he'll love it. So. Yeah, and um, tell them to get the get their act together on the front part of that article because they don't they're not doing themselves <laughs> they're not doing themselves any any they're not doing no. themselves any favors there. No. Yeah, you can tell them Uncle Milty didn't appreciate it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we will when he gives us fan mail he will we will let he will we'll know that he listened all the way to the end all right thank, thank you. you take care <laughs> bye, bye. bye. Bye-bye. wow what a great topic i love when we take one piece of writing one position and then really explore how that reshapes our thinking, especially when it comes back to rethinking what expertise means and how we learn to become experts and really shaping the future in these cases. Some fascinating thought part, thought pieces here and something that we do all the time at the Cloud 2030 in these sessions. I hope you will choose uh, to join us in the next one. Bring your ideas, bring topics, bring your questions. Uh, we'd love to hear it at the2030.cloud. You can find out all the details and how to join us and what our agenda is for future topics. I'll see you there.
Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.